Have you ever heard of the brand Oliver Peoples? Probably have. But have you heard of the brand Garrett Light? You may not have, but you should know it because Garrett is the son of the family that developed Oliver Peoples, the, the famous eyewear brand that was sold to Luxottica, and it still has great uh, market share. Today we're interviewing Garrett Light, and he brings us a true heartfelt story of growing up in the eyewear business and what he wanted out of it, and it's a Californian lifestyle culture brand. We're going to talk about you know, how we got it started, how you start designing, what a, a eyewear office actually does, and what independent eyewear is today. Check it out. Welcome to Eyetrepreneur, the podcast for Wizards of Eyes. I'm Dr. Raymond Brill with my co-host, Perry Brill, and we're here to bring you stories about Wizards of Eyes. Yes, what is a wizard, Dr. Brill? Well, these are folks that you may have heard about, may not have heard about. These are people who are actually very successful in doing what they do in all aspects of eye care. We're not talking to self-proclaimed industry geniuses, experts, masters, or gurus, because we're talking to wizards of eyes that make it happen each and every day. They are out there working every day in the labs, on the road, in the practices, in surgery suites, making lenses, making frames. Yes, we want to hear these back-of-the-house stories about innovation, entrepreneurship, and make you feel excited to do what you do. We want you to be energized about the whole eye care field. And this is not your big optical program. This is done out of the passion of our hearts. Please go ahead and subscribe to Entrepreneur, the podcast for Wizards of Eyes on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, or your favorite app. Also, visit entrepreneur.com where you'll find our latest blogs and special video content. That's www.eyetrepreneur.com. Well, Garrett, it's so nice to be with you here in the, the Arts District of downtown L.A., uh, thanks for giving me a tour of the office. Happy to do so. Thanks for coming. Appreciate it. Um, so, Garrett, you have an interesting family history. I think a lot of us in optical optometry, we have family history. Mm-hmm. You know, you grow up, uh, you see your mom or dad working late nights. They talk about frames and employees and stuff, and you don't really understand what's going on okay. until you maybe get to high school. Yeah. Uh, what, what kind of age do you think, oh, that's what my parents did? Um, that's a really good question. Um, I was like, yeah, I don't, for whatever reason, I didn't care up until 14 or 15. I was like an athlete playing tennis, and um, I played tennis in college, and um, it was a very like huge part of my life. So, um, And then just like my personal life with my friends and music and playing and all these things, uh, playing sports and whatnot, um, I just didn't even think about it. I knew that my dad was in eyewear and that my mom was part of the company and that their life heavily revolved around their business and traveled a lot for trade shows. And But I didn't really piece it together or show interest until probably 15 or 16. And I wouldn't even say that I showed interest. I just started to like acknowledge that my parents owned a luxury eyewear brand. Um, that it was kind of like the glasses of the movie stars. You know, it's a little different as we were living in LA. And, 
it was a lot about that, you know, a lot about the brand and, and all that. But, Did you go to the office ever and just play around or? Yeah, okay. absolutely. Yeah, my dad took me to both the stores and the office. Not all the time, but yeah, certainly I was there. See, for me, not to get too specific, but like my, I was with my dad on weekends. So you didn't really work on weekends. I was with my mom during the week and she wasn't working there. So gotcha. I, occasionally if I was with him on a weekday, I would maybe go to the office or he had to run an errand there or something. But yeah. Okay. Yeah, I remember just probably watching TV in the basement, like of the practice. Not, I didn't really care. No interest, zero. Yeah. You know, I knew I got free glasses, and my my dad could do my eye exam. Right. That's the extent it went. So. Yeah. I didn't I, even wear glasses at the time, so prescription okay. or sunglasses really until. Actually, I was at a surf camp, and I was more interested in this company, Black Flies, at Pascoe Surf Camp. It was like a Arnett style surf brand. I. I remember being 15 or 14 and wanting to be like, cause all the surf kids had that. And I really want, and Jonathan Paskowitz worked for Black Flies and I really just wanted him to give me a pair. <laughs> that. I wanted that more than what my parents did. <laughs> did. Really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So, so Garrett Light is a, it's a California lifestyle brand, but I'm gonna get back to kind of the origins of where you got into the eyeglass. So your dad, was it Larry? Mm-hmm. Larry Light uh, developed Oliver, Oliver Peoples, mm-hmm. iconic uh, eyewear brand. So give us the, the history on that. On Oliver Peoples or how I got into it? Uh, Oliver Peoples. So your, your dad was working in a store called Optica. Yeah, basically in the 70s, my dad started working at Optica as an optician. My mom started at the same time. They met each other there, early 80s. Optica grew to be a big chain retailer, optic, you know, um, optical shop not a practice, but like a, a fashion store that did optical. And um, he worked there for five, six years, and my mom and my dad decided to launch a, co- their, a collection of their own glasses before they started over people's. It was called Identity. Um, and they knew this girl in Beverly Hills who they grew up with, that they were friends with, who had a connection at a magazine. Um, called Interview, which Andy Warhol owned a bit of, and um, Andy Warhol got these identity glasses, and he wore them on the cover of Interview magazine, and I think that really inspired my parents to be like, like, whoa, this is so much cooler, just like working at a store, I want to be, you know, my dad always says, I used to draw pictures of my glasses on celebrities of the 80s, before really? all of our people started, okay. um, and my mom and him used to like, pretty much just like, get high in the 80s, and like, draw and envision like, you know, this brand, I'd stay up late and like learning. So they were artistic as well? <laughs> yeah, okay. artistic in LA and the whole thing. They were actually living in Orange County at the time. But um, then shortly after that, they left Optica and had the idea to open a store on Sunset Plaza in the 80s. Um, was this before the brand came? Well, it was called Oliver Peoples. It was a okay. retail store, very similar to how I did it. They sold vintage eyewear and other brands that they found at the trade show while simultaneously building their collection. Okay. So when the store launched in November of 1986, I don't think there was an Oliver Peoples frame in the store. I think it came probably about a year later. Okay. And they started selling in their store only these Oliver Peoples glasses. And back then, what you do is, you know, it's traditional wholesale. They took a sample set to the shows. And because they were in Sunset Plaza in the 80s, their, collect- their customers were insane. The type of people they were eating in that neighborhood at that time at the restaurants and hanging out and shopping were like Sam Kennison and Claudia Schiffer and Spike Lee and Elton John. These were just people that came into their store at the time and, and had to have these. And the glasses that they designed were so great, their first collection, the OP501, 
505. I don't, I don't know the whole collection, but they were really O'Malley came a little later. But um, anyways, musicians had to have them. This was kind of a time I think when just like eyeglasses were not made very well. Is that right? I don't know. Okay, I just <laughs> unfortunately. So I think I wish I knew that. I, I don't know the competitive quality of glasses. I think this was here. I'll say this. This was at a time where Japanese produced frames were not popular. Um, and I feel that Japanese craftsmanship took eyewear to the next level right. in terms of quality as you know it today. I believe that, and this is like, don't quote me, but I believe in the 70s and 80s it was a little bit more mass produced, like Italian designery that you might know of. Um, and those, just Japan took it to the next level. So. Okay. All of people was made in Japan, and they really put Japan on the map. And then other brands started moving their production to Japan, and or start or launching with made in Japan product. Um, so yeah, that's, okay, that's my take. Okay, so they eventually get a shipment to their own store, Oliver Peoples. How was that name? How did that come up? Was it just kind of like, hey, this sounds classy? Or? So when they opened the store, it was like a family affair. It was my dad, my mom, my dad's brother Dennis. Um, my dad's sister was like the CEO or whatever. Um, and before, while they were thinking of names, Dennis, who was in charge of more like the buying of the stuff in the store, they went to an estate sale uh, in New Jersey and they found, because they had heard that there was a ton of vintage frames. That even the guy didn't know what to do them. It was like temples and nose pads and finished glasses and like needed to be pieced together. And he went and just bought the whole thing for like five grand, which in the 80s was probably like 20 grand. Yeah. And um, basically, they brought it back. They started piecing these frames together, selling them, and they found a receipt in this box, and it said Oliver Peoples, and that's kind of how they named it Oliver Peoples. Okay, so off some crinkled up receipt. Yeah, it could have been how someone's we got the name. name. It could have been anything. It was just yeah. uh, some words. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So so at this time, that you know, your parents, they made this brand. Uh, they have one store, but how did it go from, you know, something so mom pa to be something so legitimate? Um, talent, honestly, just incredible talent from the people that work there. Um, you had a great team of entrepreneurs like my father and some of his partners, maybe, but not even partners, but just like the the team that they hired. They they designed an incredible original collection with really high quality. Um, they could sell like my people make jokes about how my mom was just like the best salesperson ever. She, uh-huh. you never her customers never bought one frame. They'd buy four. Yeah. So they they just believed in what they were doing. It wasn't you're not selling at that point. You're just wondering why other people don't think it's the greatest thing ever. Yeah. You're just, and then they're just inf- it's infectious and people just buy. Celebrity clientele like they had all the pieces. Yeah. Did they expand the stores, or was it always just one? No, there's many Oliver Peoples stores. I think the story goes, you know, they had the Sunset Plaza store. Then the wholesale business took off. They took the collection to trade shows. Then word spread, and people wanted Oliver Peoples. And, you know, there's jokes about how they would call the store on Sunset, and people would be like, hey, I'm in London. I really want Oliver Peoples. Can I see it? And they would just be like, no. And not because they were being... Jerks are just being like, you're in London. How could you see it? It's not, this is 1987. Yeah, there's no video call. I don't know how to send it to you. Um, And then depending, you know, they probably did a little interview, but they were like, you can buy it. And they're like, the stores would be like, I haven't seen it. They're like, well then, 
you know, you can either buy these 50 pieces or not. I don't know what to tell you. Right. And by and large, the people did buy them, and then they sold them, and then they reordered them, and then they built a team. All the people built a team to help grow the business. So foot footwork, just on the ground. Yeah. Reps and traditional routes, trade shows. Pretty much. I mean, I don't think it's unsimilar from how I did it, So, I, other than the technology right era. But yes, I would imagine. I was only three or four at the time when that launched, but... I would imagine they traveled like crazy. They worked long hours. They did a little bit of everything. You know, you have a small team. Everybody does some a little something. And they, you know, sweat equity. Right, right. So, um, so all of our peoples obviously is a luxotic. It's in the luxotic portfolio. Uh, can you tell us kind of that era when you know dad or mom was like, you know what? Now's the time to harvest. I think we sometimes we look at brands who sell out in quotes yeah. as bad, but you know it was. It's a baby. It was your life's work. At some point, you people do deserve to cash in. Yep. But I mean, it's complicated. It's not unlike probably many stories of that era and eras before, where they didn't have their come. My parents come from nothing. They didn't have money to launch a business. They needed partners. At the end of the day, there was a handful of people that owned all of her peoples. Um, 20 years later, those people didn't necessarily work at the company, not all of them. They were hungry and they wanted to eat and brand was getting big. And it was harder to navigate those relationships than it was to consider a, a sale or a merger uh-huh. for all of her peoples. So uh, my dad, who was one of the higher owning people in the business, um, had to make a decision and they started to field offers and they ultimately accepted an offer from Oakley in 2004 uh, roughly and um, Oakley was um, purchased by Luxottica so they never intended to sell to Luxottica um, I don't actually you'd have to ask some of them but I don't know maybe Luxottica made them an offer when they were for sale in 2004 but Oakley is the ultimately who bought them and then once Luxottica acquired Oakley, I worked for Oakley, so I was at all of the peoples in 2005, 6, 7, 8, and they were owned by Oakley. I left right around when Luxottica um, bought them, bought Oakley, and that's sort of how that happened. Okay. Yeah. Was there a more specific question? No, no, that was good. That's how. That's the story of, of why they sold. And it wasn't like, uh, we need to cash out. I mean, although that was nice, I'm sure, you know, to... Yeah to sell um, and make some money for what you created. It's always very, like, the American dream, I think. But yeah. it was a little bit circumstantial. It wasn't like, let's sell this thing. It, yeah. was, it was, but it was like, everybody wants to sell. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, for you as a kid, seeing all this happen, did you, how did you decide you wanted to go in a different direction in life? You want to go a little more, you want to go independent, you want control... Uh, well, this is where I'm lucky in that I, my, I wasn't, I didn't come from absolutely nothing, you know, so uh, without getting crazy into the specifics, but because of my parents' divorce, I was, um, I had small ownership of the company. It's just the way that they now, they did their deal where they had to distribute some shares to the children involved. So my dad's other partner divorced as well. Yeah. He had two kids. Also lucky, I was just one to yeah. get more money. Yeah. Um, and it wasn't a ton, but it was enough to launch Garrett Light. Um, and then just seeing the trials and tribulations of my dad 
throughout the years with partners because that's just always going to happen with partners from time to time, especially when you have five. Yeah. Um, even when you just have one, it can be. I just wanted to try my best. And I have a partner now. I had to raise money seven years ago, uh, and he's fantastic, but I'm lucky. I still own majority, but that's just, a, that's just you know, whatever. That was just a gift, to uh, God's gift. I don't know. I don't want to be like religious or something, but like – that's just, I was lucky to be able to be in a position to take every single dollar that I earned, not earned, that I was granted from that acquisition and put it into Garrett Light. Okay. I took it all and I put it all into this. Yeah. Yeah. It's not, we're not talking about millions. We're talking about less than a million, but that's what it was. Right. That's how I started. That's how I started Garrett Light. Okay. So. Yeah. I think there's a lot of people listening that do have aspirations to create a brand. Sure. You know, we all go to bed at night sometimes like, ooh, if, you know, I have an idea for this frame collection. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what when you knew you wanted to do your own thing, what was the first step, you know, you took? Was it calling factories? Was it uh, sketching? Yeah, it was both of those things. It was figuring out who I wanted to make the collection, like produce and develop, and designing the actual collection. So probably designing the collection started first, and then I would say contacting various factories to get quotes on prices, minimums, lead times, everything like that. Um, and then once it felt like it was real and underway, started to design out the logo, the branding, the strategy, both marketing strategy, sales strategy, just that whole thing. Uh, that was sort of the process of it all. Okay. So for someone that has zero knowledge, like, are they supposed to just Google eyeglasses factory Italy or eyeglasses factory China? Or, you know, how do they kind of really dig in there? Well, I think... Especially for your listeners, I think it's, I think, I mean, if you're in eyewear, you know somebody that knows somebody that could help get you started a little bit. Yeah. You know, at least set you on track. You know, if you literally know nothing about eyewear and know nothing in the eyewear industry, then you got to go to a trade show, particularly one of the big ones. Okay. There's an entire section of the trade show that has manufacturers and... It is exhausting, but I would recommend engaging many of them. I mean, ten's a little like a lot of work, but like five of them that the most appealing and interesting to you, feeling their product, seeing what matches what you'd want to make. Yeah, you know, I'm not really, I'm not really all that into like competitive and not mentioning people. Like, I think that's Dita's story. I think those two dudes didn't know anybody in Iowa. I'm pretty sure. And they, like, if you talk to John and Jeff, they were like, our first collection sucked. Yeah. Not design wise, but like, they worked, they like found a factory at the trade show. But like, obviously, they navigated that and worked it out. And they had some of the most well made product ever, beautiful made in Japan craftsman products. So, like, you know, growing pains for sure, but that's how you do it. You got to go find a vendor or supplier to, to make you product. And if you're lucky enough to be in the Iowa industry, you should ask around from people whose product you like and start to to see if you can get in touch with some factories. Right, right. Yeah, I think that's, there's no secret that a lot of brands share factories. Yeah. It's not like one frame company has 100 people working in a factory overseas. No. So. It's just hard work. I think that's the biggest thing with being an entrepreneur. It's just overcoming that it's going to be a ton of work and that you're going to make some mistakes and you're going to fail on some things. And it's just part of it. And you just have to keep going yeah so so Garrett Light is for me it's a really simple brand mm-hmm. so why does that how do you describe it and why does that connect with like Americans um well I think that Garrett Light is I describe it as a you know 
Venice Beach lifestyle eyewear brand. Um, we were founded in Venice Beach. You know, we're Southern California through and through. We represent an era of time and a group of people from a specific place that is aspirational. You know, when I started the brand, I very much just called on my friends and family to be the photographers, the models, the um, you know, work in the company and and build it together. Um, so it's very much a family in that regard, and I think just by simply being lucky enough to be based in Venice Beach and focusing on that community 11, 10 years ago and what was happening there because that street really blew up. And what, can, what was happening at that time? Um, just Abbott Kinney was evolving to be more of like a shopping district and street and a GQ and Vogue and all these magazines featured as like the hottest street in America and all these bars and restaurants and things that wasn't happening there 20 years ago when I grew up there 30 years ago. Like it was more just neighborhoody. Yeah. So that was this emerging neighborhood and kind of capitalized on that um, but but and the people there were just super cool and there's always been great art from there whether it's John Baldessari Ed Ruscha all these guys are from Venice and work in Venice and anyways that whole universe we just kind of were inspired by marketed it that way and it just caught on because especially in Europe like they looked at that because it's so far away. And they're like, oh my god, I gotta go to California. Like, this is so cool. And then somewhat in, in America too. But Americans are really territorial. Like New Yorkers think New York's the best for it. You know, like that kind of thing. Yeah. But at the same time, you can just see it that LA lifestyle that it was really well represented, and we just packaged it really well. Okay. Yeah, the brand is distinctive. It, Thank you. Just it. It definitely takes on a little tropical feel to it. Yeah. Uh, clean it's, lines. It's one of the things that I'm most proud of. I. I can't tell you how much, and there's still people today for sure, but I don't hear it, that the first two or three years, they just said, it's just a copy of his dad. He's just copying his dad. And I don't think these this brand and Oliver Peoples are, are like, they look to me nothing alike. They are so different. You know, after 10 years, you look at, sure, you could say that some of the styles are the same, but you could say that for any other brand. Every brand has a classic P3. If they don't, they're not a, they're not selling. You know, they, they, they're idiots. Like, you yeah. have to have that, you know? So yeah. I think it was natural that people would want to compare me to him, but I think that's seriously subsided. We just don't. It's totally like a different generation. We're way grittier, way more youthful, way more Californian. You know, they're way different. They're just so much, it just doesn't look the same. Yeah. So what I like about Garrett Light is it comes at, a, I think, a modest price point. Yeah. Uh, which which is nice because when you think of independent product, I think sometimes we get scared. Mm -hmm. um, we're like, oh, I can't afford that. So why did you decide to really do that price point that perhaps a millennial can afford? Sure. I mean, I'd be lying if I said that our modest price point hasn't increased significantly. It was when we first launched, the entry level optical frames were 220. I actually priced those wrong and we quickly moved it to 265. But we have not only increased some of the quality of the materials we used over the years, but just the inflation of made in China and all of that has increased significantly. And we haven't really seen, we've continued to grow as we've grown our price point. So now a Garrett Light Frame is 315, which is comparable to like an Oliver People's, but that's made in Italy. Retail. Yeah, retail. Retail, yeah. Yeah, and that's made in Italy and... Um, you know, other brands that are made in Japan are about a little more expensive, 375, 395. So we're now in that luxury price point, but you know, you get what you pay for. Right. So you just mentioned Chinese production. I know that's something you're proud of. Yeah. Uh, and I, I see great Chinese frames, even in sure. my own gallery. Yeah. So talk to us about 
you know how Chinese production has changed even within the past 10 years since you've had your brand yeah. I'm sure you've seen just parts get better absolutely um, I definitely want to tread lightly on the proud word like I would I would love to make my frames in America that would be my number one choice right but I wanted to build a brand that no factory in America currently can sustain and I didn't have the money to build my own factory it was just not within my realm of possibility at the time um, so we looked at just being 35 now at the time I was 25 when I launched um, and having an iPhone not caring about where that product was made it was made in China and many products and just thinking about the millennial and the Gen Z consumers you know it's quality first and brand experience you know and, and design and I think if you can achieve those things country of origin is becoming less and less important I think the sad thing for opticians is that in order to sell Japanese-made product over the last 20 years, part of the tactic has been, well, China's the worst. So now they've been telling their customers that for so long that even though now China's not the worst, it's really hard to overcome because they sound like hypocrites. Yeah. But they know in their hearts that holding a Garrett Light frame or any other brand that makes a high-quality frame in China, they know the quality is just as good, if not better, than countries that are more romantic to say. Right. But I can understand the hurdle that they've created for themselves. So I think many of them have fought it, but it seems like, especially at trade shows and now, it's like nobody asks us, nobody talks about it, many brands are doing it. And I've always just said there's two ways to make things, the right way or the wrong way. And I learned it all over people is how to make things the right way. I just chose factory that was giving me the best value and I helped launch Mosley Tribes I don't know if you know what that is but no. it was at Oliver Peoples it was like a streetwear lifestyle brand sport brand from Oliver Peoples that was supposed to be younger and more youthful and we made it in a factory in China and my dad would always just be like oh my god they're the best this factory is the best always on time they have the highest quality he was so hyped about them and they were one of the first three factories I engaged and now they're the only factory we use we just got rid of all the other ones because they're the best okay so you learn yeah. who's on time. That, those are, those are huge it's things. It's not taking too. shortcuts. Totally. It's funny, like, now that we're older in our 10th year, um, I've noticed that we're not, like, the hot brand anymore. Well, we were for years, like, at the shows, everybody's talking about Garrett Light. But it's funny, like, one thing we've all, even though we, everybody grows out of that if you sustain and stick around, but one thing we always did was run a great, like, I, I can thank the factory heavily, but also the team we built, like, We've always had a great stock. We've always been in stock on our best sellers with a great service, great price, great product. Nowadays, not nowadays, there's always these brands that are maybe the hot brand, but like they can't deliver. Like you gotta be firing on all cylinders and that's something I'm super proud of that I think we've built a really sustainable, smart, strong business. Yeah, so w when I walked in here, I've never been into like a frame office. Mm -hmm. um, I think we forget that there's like Operationally, there's things that have to happen mm -hmm. to get that frame from office to retailer. Yeah, sure. So, like, give us a virtual tour here. What are your departments in a frame company? We'll just let's walk in the door. We'll start like okay. That. So we're going through the, the front door, door here. Yeah, you're going to the front door. You go to the right. Um, you're greeted by somebody in customer service, and we've got about three people in customer service in the states um, that deal with wholesale customers, retail customers, and e-commerce customers that may be calling in, trying, you know, have a, have a, want to reorder something, have a problem with their frame. Um, so customer service, which includes accounting. Uh, we have a director of retail, 
uh, director of sales, so she deals with all of the opticians in America. She manages a team of reps. Um, we're out on the road getting orders, and she they report to to her. Um, we've got our COO. We've got a director of communications who manages all of our PR and just communications market overseas marketing. Um, we've then got our uh, development team, which deals with all the factories, deals with forecasting, both financial forecasting and inventory forecasting. So planning inventory and line planning. Um, that's a huge job doing all new collection reorders and whatnot. So she deals a little less with factory, more with re like ordering. Um, then we've got our CFO, our COO. We've got um, our design team, which is five people, and they are designing two collections. They deal a ton with the factory. Uh, as well, but mostly designing the collection. So you actually have people in here, and I saw it in office, they're on, I don't know, Photoshop or whatever yeah. program you Illustrator, use. Illustrator, Photoshop. Okay, yeah. so they're actually drawing it out, coming up with the color it mixes. Yeah, sourcing, they have like a huge archive of materials and putting piecing together collections, art storyboard for inspiration for next season. Um, they report to our head designer in there who's you know, directing all the, the, the work um, there. Then you gotta, then you're, that's the end of the office. You gotta go, then you go all the way back to me and you go left. You got our marketing team, um, that's pretty cut and dry, you, but that's, dip, you got e-commerce, social media, and traditional wholesale marketing and retail marketing. Uh, we got a lab here where we cut lenses, so like aftermarket custom. And then we have our shipping department, um, which is doing shipping, receiving, um, quality control that's about it um, okay and then we have that same last piece that I just mentioned we have in Europe identicals shipping receiving customer service and quality control okay um, so what are like what are barriers like for a wholesale frame company that you have to overcome like what's hard oh, there's God. like two things that is just like damn this keeps getting tougher what what is that uh, two things well, one is employees um, finding great talent, keeping good. It's not how actually we're, I shouldn't say keeping. We, we've really built a great environment. People genuinely love working here. It's a really great family environment. Um, and keeping talent hasn't been all that difficult. We haven't had great people leave on us, which is, you know, a testament to like the way we do things. Yeah. But generally speaking, if I was speaking to a potential entrepreneur, I'd say talent and, and employees are going to be your biggest issue just everything that goes around from from issues with them to their income to just everything getting the work out of them finding them that whole thing employees is always the number one the hardest thing um and um inventory would be the second thing just making sure you hire like a forecast you know a strong planner to, to forecast your cash flow and your your line planning because yeah. it'll eat you alive you I pay for everything that we order. The factory doesn't go, oh, you didn't sell that frame? Oh, no problem. You don't have to pay for it. Yeah. But I don't sell everything I yeah. order. You know what I mean? Like, accounts don't order everything. Right. So that slowly rises and rises. You got to you got to figure that part out yeah. big time. So I, I feel like if I was starting a new brand, like, you know, obviously the goal is to get to a trade show and have a, a big expensive booth. But um, I think times are changing. Well... <laughs> In someone's head, that might be the goal. But, okay. you know, if you're starting a new brand, obviously, you know, you need to make sales. Should they get an expensive trade show booth or just kind of scale back a little and do the hand-to-hand -hand combat? 
I would suggest no, especially in this day and age. I wouldn't have a goal of getting to a trade show and building a booth. Um, I think one of the things that we did unknowingly was in Venice when we launched our collection, we had a retail store and I was just a member of that community and I was 25 and we threw parties like every other Friday in our courtyard. And what I was doing unknowingly was building this community of people that could, they were part of that experience and we were blogging it and putting it out into the world and I think people were looking at it going like wow look at that whole little universe over there <laughs> but the key word being community um, so I really focus on like developing and nurturing this group of people that grew through word of mouth so then when we did come out with a collection that kind of trick marketing was already there and people really desired it um, but and then this was 10 years ago we did go to the trade show and find all the sale customers but if I was on GMRN today, I would focus more on that community and I would do it and I would try to engage them through, at the very least, e-commerce because it's a little bit cheaper than a retail experience. But if you can do retail and e-commerce yeah, and wholesale is great, but I would feel strongly that if you don't have that, you're not going to be speaking to the consumers of the future. Okay. So you just mentioned retail. So you have, I think, five. you have five. You're, are you opening another one? We're opening two more, yeah. Two more, okay. Yeah. So are they all California-based? Are they... No. Uh, right now we're in Texas and New York. Texas. And California. Okay. So why retail? Why is that in such an important component of your business? Um, I come from a retail background. My parents had all of the peoples. They had multiple stores. Um, they're both great salespeople. Talking to people and being in that environment comes naturally to me. It was something that I knew and grew up around. Um, and then uh, I opened my store in Venice and we just, I was good at it, you know, just good at retail and I trained my staff and they became good at it and we are just good at retail, you know, it's just something that we understand. We know how to engage our customer and excite them and give them a good experience and deliver a good product and experience. So, uh, Is it just Garrett Light product you carry or do you have yeah. other? Well, we have our second brand that I do with my dad, Mr. Light, but okay. it's all products made in this building okay. or designed in this building. And um, that's what I was good at, that's what worked, but then I just think in the, the future and now, giving customers that omni-channel experience of e-commerce, retail, and wholesale is the key. You gotta be able, they wanna be able to feel what it's like to be in the Garrett Light community, and the best way to do that is to hop into a store. Right. And the second best way to do that would be shopping online. Yeah, okay. Um, there's just a lot of overhead in, in retail. Um, and you know, it gets back to the hiring stuff. So it's always a decision as a brand. You know, should you open a store? Or should you not? Yeah. So yeah, I mean, it's you know, up to each person. I think I think it's worth. I think the juice is worth the squeeze. You know what I mean? Like I think, yeah, the overhead is your your build out, your rent, your staff, and your inventory, and then whatever other overhead. But mostly that. And um, you know, if you pick the right street and you have a great staff, I think. I think it's doable. Yeah. Okay. So let's jump into e-commerce. Um, I'm a proponent of e-commerce. I think it's good. Anything you can do to get the word out about a product is awesome. Mm -hmm. Now, um, your retail clients might hate it because they feel like you're selling against them. Mm -hmm. So talk to us. Why, why e-commerce and why is that a good thing for the industry? I mean, first of all, we've been selling online for... We didn't start when we launched in 10 years, 10 years ago, but about eight years we've been selling online. 
I don't hear people asking me anymore. Perhaps certain people aren't buying because we're sold online, but none of my existing customers complain about it because it's not something we launch later. Like we have it, it's there. So you know what you're getting into. We really can't do our job without e-commerce just in the sense that we need to know who our customer is. So yeah. it informs us on who to, what to design, who to collaborate with, and you know how to sell our frames, how to market our frames. It tells us who our customer is exactly. You just go into Google Analytics and yeah. we know that our customer is this age. Is there like a certain this... state that orders the most frames? Or... Well, California, okay. for sure. It's, you know, but um, yeah, so we have all that data. I can show you a file that tells you all the demographics and um, it's very useful to trying to run a business. Unfortunately, the way that it is now, I don't really know who my customer is at the wholesale level. I don't know what our best account in Seattle. I just don't know who shops there. We have we have three accounts in Seattle. They all do pretty well. I think we have a few more than that, but let's say we have three accounts in Seattle. They all do pretty well, and I assume they all have slightly different demographics. One's in Capitol Hill, one's in downtown, one's in somewhere else, right? So like, they don't all have the same customer, and I'm just, you know, so, but maybe, Maybe they're only selling to the specific customer. So the point is, I don't know. Yeah. And e-commerce, you have it's. If you listen to anything now, or watch any documentaries, or just pay attention to the news at all, it's, everybody's fighting a data game now. It's all about data. Like, yeah. You have to have it in order to be successful. So, I just can't imagine anybody trying to launch a business without that piece. How could it hurt? You yeah. Know? I I like e-commerce because, you know, that customer goes online. They they just want to look at the product. Sure. And it gives them a gallery at least to say, okay, I, you know, I love this frame in green. Let me go to that finder, dealer course, locator. Yeah. yeah. Let's go try it on. We still promote our stores and we have that dealer locator and like, you know, you know, I agree with that. So, um, yeah, I mean, so what do you, what do you say to the optician that says, nope, I'm never going to buy that, you know, Garrett Light, he sells online. You know, how do you address that conversation? That's fine. I'm probably selling his customer glasses. True. Well, I mean, what am I yeah. supposed to do? I'm, I like, I would, I don't have a response to that. I'm never gonna. So that customer says, never buying Garolite. He sells on. Oh, yeah, it's just why would I? Just stop talking to him. I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> I don't have a great answer for that. I would say that's okay. Garrett makes glasses for X and sell. You know, like a lot of times when we're making decisions, sometimes we'll have this philosophy of like, let's just do it and see you know, ask for forgiveness type of thing. And ultimately, it's no secret, this is not just highway, this is any business. If a company, if through the whole, let's say we have an account who, who doesn't love that we sell online and we do, I'm just using easy numbers, $5,000 a year with him. Our glasses are $400, so you're just telling me all I have to do is sell 20 glasses to Dallas in a year online to make, you know what I mean, to equal that business? Like, I can probably do that, so. It's the ball's just not really in that guy's court. Yeah, like that doesn't really bother me that much. Yeah, you got to roll with the times and realize. Do you get what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, you're basically telling me all I have to. So, like, okay, don't buy. Literally, to break even on your city, I just have to sell twenty. Right. And I could probably sell five by just doing a localized advertisement to Plano, Texas, and figuring out my customer and finding a way. You right. know, I could probably sell that in one day. So. Right. God, I don't hate to be this way, but I'm like, I have a really great brand. I'm doing you a favor by offering it to you. Yeah. Wow. I mean, I hate, I feel like I wouldn't have said that 10 years ago, but like, like you just don't have the ball anymore. Yeah. I don't have to do that much business in your city to, to make it worthwhile for you not to carry it. So, yeah. I mean, 
And then you, those 20 people that I sold to and or more, what if they do go online? Like, I want to see this stuff in person. That person is now passing up that opportunity. We've spent the money to inform your community. That community wants to see it. Yeah. And you don't have it, so they either can't see it, and they're not buying from me or you. Everybody loses. Yeah. I mean, I know, like, if I were to buy a computer, you know, let's say I want to get a, a MacBook, I'm going to go online, check out the specs I want, but I'm going to go to the store. I, that's how I shop, too. A lot of people don't, though. It's an, it's an expensive good. Like, I just want that help. I know. I'm constantly surprised how many people don't do that, though. I'm exactly like you. I won't buy. If I'm buying something cheap. Well, I would rebuy my computer though. Like Rebuy, yeah. Like if I knew I just wanted the same one and I've had the same computer for more roughly. You know what I mean? Like I'd rebuy something expensive. Like I know I like the MacBook Air. I know that I like the lightweight, smaller screens because I usually use my laptop when I'm traveling. I have desktops everywhere, right? So that's something where I actually might do it. But like I would never buy a $5,000 watch online. No. But people do. Hodinky.com is a huge website that sells $20,000 watches online. People do it. Yeah. By and large. So I'm, but I am like you. I would never do that. Yeah. I think the eyeglasses consumer still does want to buy in person. I I do too. I think they do. To to a, mostly. Yeah. So. Unless they're buying like fashion glasses. Right. Blenders or some weird like $50 brands. Which interesting. Blenders just got bought by. Sapphalo. I read that yesterday. Yeah. So, yeah. So it's it's interesting that big corporations are starting to see these online brands emerge and want to buy them. Oh yeah, I mean for sure, it's the future. So, um, well, should should we for an older you know optician, what should they do with their stores as their it comes to an end? You know, what's well, your? I don't think it's coming to an end. I think that they just need to continue to be. What do they do? Are they... First and foremost, you have to be passionate. If your passion's gone, you just don't care. And it's just a place for you to pull money out of because you're 65 now and don't just, just don't care about the practice anymore. You're dead. You, ha- you are near the end. It's over. And if your son or daughter is... Doesn't want to be enough. You're done. Yeah. It's over. And do they, they close have... or they try and sell? Well, I don't know. That's a, I, I don't know. I'd have to see their profit and loss sheet and balance yeah. sheet. I, I don't know. But I just think they don't need to do either of those. I think all you got to do is find someone to replace that passion that you once had you can stay owner or find someone whether you're selling or not um, reinvigorate your store with some staff maybe a little um, facelift wouldn't hurt you know it is if you launched if you opened your store in 1972 and haven't redesigned it in 40 years like maybe change the carpet paint some walls and look at like a new display like 20 grand maybe wouldn't hurt you there 15 something like that whatever you know different prices for different places for construction but yeah, just give it a little love and make sure that somebody running it is passionate. I, my answer to them, see, this is where I think people are wrong. Like, for that person, I wouldn't be like, get online, you know, have my opticalstore.com. Or yeah, that's probably taken, but you know what yeah, I mean? Like, yeah. that's actually not what I'm saying. I'm just, just love your business again. The real problem why your sales are down is you just don't care anymore. You opened your business 35 years ago and you're bored. Yeah. It's not anything else, really. Yeah. What about for like a new newer optician? Maybe they've been in the business for five to ten years. They love it. They still have that passion. You know, how would they open a store? You know, how do they pick the location, the brands they carry? Yeah, I mean, don't go after their competitors' customers. Have something original. Pick a cool street. Depends on who that owner is, right, and what they're like and what their interests are. But like, take their passion and interest and put it into that space. Design something unique and different, and target a different new customer. Because those customers also are the ones that move the needle for the other people. So 
you know, target a 25 to 35 year old millennial who's, you know, has a good job and can afford your glasses. And they're coming in all this, before you know it, there's all this buzz about your store and be super active in the digital space, not e-commerce, but like social media, have a Facebook, have a Twitter, have an Instagram, have a TikTok, fucking post all the time and just like create that engagement. Yeah. And before you know it, thousands of people will know about your store and right. an old optician down the street will be like, what the hell do is Do you buy on? online? Do you buy ads online? Yeah. Okay. Um, so I, I find this baffling that you can have a website, you can post organically on social media, but you're not going to make sales until you you pay. You just have to pay eventually. I wonder how black and white that is. My e-commerce director would know better, but yeah, it helps. Significantly helps conversion and, and, and yeah. Yeah. Um, it's not expensive. You don't have to pay a ton for Facebook and Instagram ads. No, even a few hundred bucks a, a month. A few hundred bucks. Yeah. yeah. That's not a lot of but money. I, I just think for the local opt, opt, optician or eye doctor, they're probably not going to have the biggest Instagram following organically. No. Which is, it's hard. You know, if you were looking at your podiatrist and you have an Instagram, <laughs> no one's going to look at your... I agree with that, but to, but it's, it's hard because they don't want to do the work. You know, like... There's a reason that a 16-year-old girl or guy or whatever has 100,000 followers. It's because they're digital natives that post 27 times a day. And yeah, they live they on their phone. It's not that their content's better. It's not that they know what they're doing. They're just creating they're a ton of content. And that's what people want. They're constantly on our phones looking for entertainment. So they're going to follow people that try to entertain them throughout yeah, the day. If you're only posting once a day. It's just a big commitment. So it's not realistic that a... 50-year-old doctor is going to do it, but they should try to find a way or hire somebody or find a way to have, even if it's your kid, it's like your kid's probably in his 20s and digital native, like let that person do it, you know? So right. it it's not, I hate, I wish it was, it's not quality with social media. It's fucking, it's quality. Yeah. Isn't it kind it, of? It is. And I, Quality I, helps. You'll get there faster, but it's kind of quantity. Yeah. People, you can't go silent on social media for like, five days people want to follow you they think you're dead waste of my time yeah Yeah. i think you're dead like i i don't want to follow people that aren't active yeah and instagram tells you like hey so-and-so just recently posted they haven't posted in forever yeah it's hard for me honestly i'm not i'm just at the end of that digital native age i prefer to live in the real world what i even though that, that that social media is the real world i just mean like i can go periods of time without like having to tell people out there, you know, so, which isn't necessarily advantageous for growing your following. Yeah, yeah. So so you're an independent brand, that means you are f- free from licenses, you're not paying for a swoosh on your glasses or uh, some other icon. What, what does it mean to be an independent brand and why should an optical adopt, you know, that philosophy? Um, I don't know that it, an optician needs to adopt it. They're, they have to understand some things, cop- come with you know working with independent brands a lot of independent brands struggle with various things it could be um, finance accounting inventory design you know there's trials and tribulations when working with an independent brand and it's very hard to figure out especially early on which of those brands are going to be able to deliver um, all the goods that you need metaphorically and figuratively and uh, you know whereas you work with like a big Luxottica Saflo group like they got you they're always going to have what you need for the most part I mean they're not great at their service but like yeah they've got multiple brands you know they've got the whole thing they've got a very straightforward structure it's like very you know you can work with one rep 
pay one account. They probably have longer terms because they can afford it, right? So you have all yeah. these things that are advantageous, uh, but you're losing that competitive edge of like being in the know and having the cool thing and having what's trendy. And so there's what, pros but, and cons. But what do you do for like, let's say an optician, you know, they they killed it in the in the 80s with these brands and their consumer their consumers are just getting bored. Like they gotta take a risk. They need to go to a show and find five new brands. So they have to just take a risk. So just buy go to a trade show and buy some brand that they never heard of. I didn't say that. I mean, do your research. You don't just blindly go into a trade show, but like, you know, you have you also like have you have to have the humbleness and awareness to know the strengths of your practice as well. Like a doctor who owns it shouldn't be so like egotistical that they're like, I'm going to go to the show and buy it. Like send the people that are working with the customers who know what the customers are looking for. Take a family trip to the show, business trip, find some brands, talk about it, do your research, look on social media, look on their websites, talk to the brands, understand their business and then pick three or four that you think would in- inspire and excite your customer so you yeah. can introduce them to new and cool, innovative designs. Yeah. No, I think when you when those independent frames arrive in an office, it's like the special frames, you know? Like, yeah. You're excited to open a Garrett Light box. Now, when the Ray-Ban box comes, you're like, okay, it's the Ray-Ban. Sure, like, I think so. You know, the Ray-Bans are going to be cool and they're colorful and they do have good styles, but... It's not as exciting. The packaging is not as exciting. The whole thing is just unique and different. Yeah, people like to see that type of stuff. So yeah, no, you got to take a you got to take a chance. And okay, yeah, I'm all about risk taking in an optical. Like, okay, so you know, let's say you buy four thousand dollars in a new line. If it flops, it flops. Right. You know, but majority of the time, it's it's not going to. Sure. I mean, the it flops and flops attitude can be very dangerous, though. I mean, like you got to be, you still got to try to figure out how to do it and who's what's right for your customer. I think. A major key here too is once again the humbleness and the awareness of, of yourself. Like I think a big mistake people go in is they look at buying as like this fun thing where it's like I'm gonna go to these new brands and I'm gonna buy the twenty frames that I like. I just I think you go to the brands and be like, what are your best sellers? Buy the stuff you like from them after you've established that that's the right brand for your store. Too many people get overexcited about that and they're like, I like this one and this one and this one and it's like you end up buying stuff that the, the company that this doesn't sell. Yeah. So it's not as fun, but you take some of the excitement out. You pick the brands that you think your customers will like, the brands that seem to be growing and trending and people are talking about, but then ask the rep, what do you sell? I want I want 50 frames and I want you to pick 40 that you sell and then I'll pick 10 that I like. Okay. Something like that. Yeah. Not like, I know, I know what my customer wants. That right. attitude is riskier. Yeah. Way riskier. Yeah. So. As far as like carrying lines go, should we be worried if the guy three miles down the street has the same frame lines, or, or maybe maybe everyone does better when it's, you know, there's better concentration. I mean, so ultimately, exclusivity comes down to a competition of customer service. The, you can have three stores on the same street, and the store that sells the most will be the ones with the best staff. Period. Right. It'll be the whoever. Whoever, so you're really, the real competition is acquiring talent to work in the store. So if I live in a small city like Memphis and there's only five good opticians and one guy's got all five of them and the other person doesn't, the guy with the best brands who doesn't have those five good salespeople isn't going to beat the guy with the five good salespeople. So you're not really competing. Yeah. To me, the brand part is 
almost inconsequential. I right? agree. It's more about who's got the better experience. Now, if you know you're losing that experience for whatever reason, first of all, you should try to fix that. Why don't I have better employees? Why does that store have all the good employees? That's the bigger problem. But then I can understand, well, like, well, I don't want to give them Garrett Light because then they're going to sell it more than me and I won't even sell the stuff that I do have. I only sell to the people that find Garrett Light online and come into my store and want yeah. Garrett Light. I'm just lucky to have it. So, like, I get it. Like, it's really just a reflection of how good your store is. People that are jealous about exclusivity just don't just know that they don't I, really have the best I store. I personally don't care about uh, ex- exclusivity. doesn't matter to me. Because you know you have the best – you have, like, the best experience well, I, probably. It doesn't matter how your store is merchandised. Right. You have to have – Lack of better terms, like hawks as salespeople. When that person comes in and they start looking around, yeah. uh, left, right, that's a clue that that customer needs help. Yeah. And then the person helping them has to just figure out who is this person? What do they want to hear? What is their life all about? What are they going to look good in? Like, what, and how can I help them leave with the happiest and best experience? Yeah. And I think a lot of times people don't do that at retail. It happens to me all the time. Not in I were just walking into stores. It's bad service. Yeah, you know, just people could have. I would have spent five hundred bucks today, and just nobody talked to me. Nobody really engaged me, and I left. Yeah. So, um, in optical, we need a lot of technical skills: screwdrivers, knowing how to fix things, mm-hmm. optics. Mm-hmm. I think sales is the number one thing that I would possibly want from somebody. Absolutely. So, in, in today's kind of op- optician world, what should we focus on? You know, whether you're a boss and like, hey, you know, we need this type of training. Um, I think having a cohesive um, approach that all of your staff knows and understands sort of like what we stand for, uh, why we're great. I mean, it shouldn't be selling. I think I said that earlier. I don't know if I said it on microphone, but, you know, it, sh- it, it should be so natural. You should believe so much in what you're doing that you're not really selling. You're just more wondering, like, why don't they believe what I believe? And so I think first and foremost – Making sure, like a big part of my director of retail's job is to make sure that all the staff are on board. They're all drinking the Kool Aid, to be honest. Okay. And I hate that because drinking the Kool Aid typically is negative. It's like right. it's like oh, it's just Kool Aid. It's not real. It's not doesn't have any substance. But I believe we have substance. So it's just making sure that everybody understands why we do what we do, why we are the way we are, what we believe in, what we stand for, so that selling things comes naturally and easily. It doesn't feel like a job. Yeah, to me, selling is just getting. Trying to have a conversation with the customer to understand what they need. Right. Because they're not going to tell you. Yeah. No one's going to say, yep, I came in here because I need these computer glasses because I'm an accountant. Yeah, exactly. I, you know, I was probably the worst at this, but like if I had a customer for an hour, I probably spent 45 minutes not even talking about glasses to them. Just life. Well, that's what I prefer to do. Yeah, whatever their interests were. Like if they said anything about anything non-related to glasses, I would eat that up. And I made sure I was knowledgeable about Music, art, fashion, books, whatever, uh, politics. Like yeah. if that's what they wanted to talk. I'd find a way to make them laugh. People are lonely. People are lonely. Yeah, a lot of people just come to retail spaces to talk. Yeah, yeah. So, especially if you have like an you know older clientele, fifty plus. Yeah, that might be their only interaction during the day. <laughs> Maybe. I, be yeah, so outside. Just have of, a nice conversation with somebody. The yeah. glasses will just be like a small part of it. You yeah. Know? I know it should be before the sales even over. You've sold three pairs and talked about vacation and totally. Where have you been? What are you doing? Where do you want to go? Yeah. yeah. So cool. Well, I appreciate you being on the podcast here, Garrett. I know you have a lot of industry knowledge. It's just good to yank it out. And <laughs> Thanks for having me. Your memoir is not coming out anytime soon, so. No. 
later in life. Maybe the 20 year anniversary of yeah, your life. Yeah, there you go. So, well, I appreciate it so much. Well, thanks, man. Thanks. This brings us to the end of another episode of Entrepreneur, the podcast for Wizards of Eyes. Go ahead and click over to our website, entrepreneur.com, or head over to Facebook to join our special Facebook group, Entrepreneur. See you there.